Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing our episodes that give a sort of glossary overview of some common acronyms and initialisms within tech, and include a little bit of backstory for each one. And because I'm a chatty feller, in the first episode, we started off with 2FA, or two-factor authentication, and we ended with DLC, or downloadable content. So we're going to pick up right where we left off and continue on down the alphabet. So next up is DLL. This is Microsoft's approach to what is called a shared library. And by that, uh, I mean that it's a file that contains non-volatile resources that can be used by different computer programs. Volatile in this case refers to whether or not the information is changeable or, or it gets wiped out when the device is powered off. So these libraries remain unchanged when the computer powers off and they are right back when the computer powers back on and that information persists even after the machine shuts down. These libraries hold assets that other programs might need to access uh, in the process of you know, the program's doing whatever it is they're supposed to do. So if you've ever seen a file that has the DLL extension, that's a dynamic link library. And it means you're on a PC that's running on Windows. Getting into more detail would pretty much require a dedicated episode. So just think of DLL files as being a resource cache for programs running on a Windows computer. And if you've ever had any sort of program give you an error because it couldn't find a DLL uh, file, that's what it's looking for. Next is DNS, or Domain Name System. So you know how you can type in addresses in a web browser to go to specific web pages? Like, you know, YouTube.com takes you to YouTube, and Netflix.com takes you to Netflix, and Facebook.com takes you to a wretched hive of scum and villainy there might be a tiny bit of editorializing that made its way in there. My apologies. Well, anyway, DNS is the underlying system that makes all that possible. Uh, it's this system that acts kind of like a massive address book for all things internet, not just the web, but the web stuff is probably the easiest to explain, typically, because it's how a lot of us interact with the internet. Now, every machine on the internet has a numerical address in the form of an IP address. But as we established with binary language and machine code in the previous episode, we humans do not handle tons of numbers super well. So it would be really hard for us to remember specific IP addresses if we had to rely purely on putting in those numerical addresses. And by the way, that's just for IPv4 addresses, which is outdated. These days, you would really need to learn IPv6 addresses. Those are even longer strings of characters, and they include not only numbers, but some letters as well. Uh, more on that in a later entry. So the DNS establishes which domain names relate to which IP addresses, and it makes it way easier to navigate the internet for those of us incapable of committing strings of seemingly random letters and numbers to memory. There's a lot more to be said about DNS, including the various attacks that hackers sometimes launch against the DNS, but we can save that for other episodes. 
Next is DOS, or D-O-S. That stands for Disk Operating System. And more often than not, it refers to an operating system that was derived from IBM's personal computers. There have been many different flavors of DOS, which share a few elements in common. They are text-based operating systems. So in other words, you navigate these by typing out various commands in a, in a prompt, and you do that to move through directories and folders. There's no windows, there's no you know, icons to click on. You're typing these commands out. And you also type in commands to execute specific files, so to run a program that's stored on a computer. Before Windows, this was how people would interact with computers that had hard drive storage. Uh, prior to that, your average user would typically just insert a disk into a disk drive, and the computer's boot process would launch directly into that disk's associated program, although you could actually navigate to a disk drive and execute a program that way. That was also possible. For PCs, Windows would end up replacing DOS, and on Apple computers, the Mac operating system replaced Apple's version of DOS. DOS was a pretty lightweight operating system, and that meant you could reserve more of your computer's resources to store and run the programs that you wanted to execute. And some old fogies, like yours truly, got really salty when Windows came along because it demanded way more computational resources than DOS did. So while Windows was inarguably easier to navigate and leagues more intuitive than DOS ever was, it also encroached on precious computational resources, and some folks, like me, got grouchy about it and held out for a long time until pretty much all the software that was out there in the world required a Windows operating system as the foundation. Not that I'm still bitter nearly 40 years later. <clears throat> Next is DPI. This stands for dots per inch, and it's typically used to refer to the resolution of printed or scanned material. So with displays and screens and monitors, we talk about resolution in terms of the number of pixels that are on display within a full screen, right? So greater pixel density means that you have higher resolution. So another way to think of it is to imagine that you are tasked with making a yellow smiley face image, and you're given a frame, and that frame is one foot square. And you're gonna make this image using wooden blocks that are painted a single color. You're given a bunch of yellow blocks and a bunch of black blocks. Each of these blocks is one inch square. So you've got a, a foot by a foot, so you can fit 12 squares across and 12 squares down, and you make your little smiley face image it would be a very blocky smiley face. But let's say you keep that same frame, so it's one foot by one foot, but now you're given blocks that are half an inch square. So they're half uh, the size, half the, the width and half the length. And now you can fit way more squares in. Well, it's going to look a little better. Maybe you go down to a quarter of an inch uh, for a, a square. And as those blocks get smaller, you can fit more of them into the same physical space and you create smoother lines as a result, giving your image a higher resolution. Well, the same is true for displays and, well, for printers. So dots per inch is the resolution of the number of dots of half tone that uh, can appear per inch of paper. Generally speaking, a higher DPI means that you get a more clear, sharp, and detailed print job. But just like photo resolution, there is a point of diminishing returns in which 
you know, boosting that DPI number even higher might not lead to a noticeable improvement. It might, on paper, to use a pun, be an improvement, but you might not be able to actually see it. It's not unusual to have printers with a high DPI in, in excess of around 2,000. Next is DRM. This is the dreaded digital rights management. This refers to copyright holders attempting to control the consumption of digital media in some way. So let's take a step back for a minute. When I was a kid, if I had been a ne'er-do-well, which I wasn't, I was a good kid, but let's say that I was a rotten kid, maybe I might go down to the local Turtles music store in Gainesville, Georgia, and I decide I'm going to try and shoplift a cassette tape of, I don't know, Bruce Springsteen's greatest hits. If I had done that, well, I mean, first of all, I would have been a thief. But on top of that, I would have deprived that Turtles from being able to sell that particular cassette. The store would be unable to sell it because it's gone, right? I mean, the physical copy is in my hands. So stores had to come up with various methods to discourage or prevent shoplifting. But then skip ahead a few decades. Now you're in a world with digital files. And that world is very different. For one thing, it is way easier to make copies of digital files than it would be with physical media. Not that you couldn't make physical copies. We could. It was just very time-consuming. And by the way, big companies weren't huge fans of even that kind of copying back in the day. So various media companies came up with ways to limit or restrict how users could experience and more specifically how they could copy media. So for example... There might be copy protection on a file that only allows it to be copied a certain amount of times before it's locked down. So you can only install this file on a certain number of machines, and then after that, the code would not allow you to transfer it to a new device. Um, or there might be DRM that connects to the internet, where it phones home back to whatever the IP holder's system is and keeps them informed about how that media is being used. The goal of DRM is mostly to prevent piracy and to stop the unlicensed sharing of technology. And I frequently think of it in terms of media. That's the example that I always go to. However, DRM can actually cover all sorts of technologies beyond even digital files. That includes hardware, like physical hardware, including stuff like tractors. So why tractors? Well, let's say you're a company like John Deere, because John Deere does this, and you make tractors. And you know that somewhere down the line, people are going to need to have those tractors repaired or have some sort of maintenance done on them. By including DRM, you can make sure that only licensed mechanics, which are people who have paid you for the privilege of being able to work on these types of machines, they're the only ones who can legally repair John Deere tractors. Because the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, made it illegal to try and circumvent DRM. So even if you were a mechanically savvy farmer and you wanted to do your own repairs, you would not be allowed to do that legally. You would have to break the law because you'd have to get around the DRM to do it. Or I guess you could go through the trouble to apply and become a licensed mechanic with John Deere, but I think that's probably going too far. So one of the really big issues with DRM 
is that it can have unintended consequences and make it more difficult to legally make use of a product that you've actually purchased yourself. So in many ways, DRM can actually end up encouraging piracy. And that's because frequently pirates will actually work to strip DRM out of products. That removes all those restrictions, which again, affect not just people who are trying to steal stuff, it affects people who have legitimately purchased things. The moral of the story, I think, is that if you make it harder for people to use something legally, they are far more likely to turn to illegal means to do so. Anyway, DRM comes in all different forms. Some are less obnoxious than others. And I do want to make this clear. I get the motivation for using it. I mean, companies make revenue off their intellectual property. They don't want to see that go away. So it's in their best interests to try and find ways to protect that. It's just that a lot of the DRM approaches seem to not quite achieve that goal and instead just create frustrations. Next is DVD. And I included this one because, I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone out there knows what a DVD is, but the actual initialism used to trip me up all the time because I grew up in the era in which compact discs or CDs first debuted and they transformed the music industry. And then DVDs came around to do the same for the home video market and then beyond. Uh, So the humble VHS tape eventually faded away as a result. And I always used to think that DVD stood for digital video disc. But that ain't it. Or at least that's not the whole story. And I'm sure a lot of you out there are way smarter than I am, way more informed than I am. And you're all shouting the real name, which is digital versatile disc. Now, to be fair, at least according to some sources, the original name was digital video disc. But at some point, the manufacturers who were putting this together figured that this could give people the impression that DVDs are only good for storing video content because people can get very narrow focused on this sort of stuff. But of course, DVDs can hold all sorts of different types of digital information. So that was why they swapped out video for versatile. That would replace video, except no one really paid much attention to that, and they just still called DVD digital video disc, or just DVD. They never bothered to call it the full thing anyway. Like compact discs, DVDs are a type of optical storage, which means we use light to read and write information on those discs. Companies like Sony and Philips started working on DVD technology not long after releasing the first compact discs. So the CD allowed for the storage of large digital files, like high-quality audio files, but with refinement, these companies knew that they could cram even more information onto a disc. So for about a decade, uh, two different big groups of companies began to work on the next generation of optical discs, and it came down to two competing formats. So in this corner, you had Sony and Philips that had developed a technology that they called the Multimedia CD, or MMCD. And in this corner, you had Toshiba and Time Warner, a couple of other companies, and they had uh, really led the development on a format called Super Density Discs, or SD. Seeing how two competing formats could ultimately hurt the market, as anyone who has been a consumer during a format war can tell you, the groups ultimately decided that it would make way more sense for them to collaborate and make a common format that combined elements of both SD and MMCD. 
That is what became DVD. DVD players went on sale in Japan in 1996, took another year for them to come out over in the United States, and the DVD could really hold way more information than a CD. In fact, if you had a dual-layer, double-sided DVD, you could store more than 10 times the amount of information that could fit on a compact disc. Well, we are finally through the Ds, everyone, and when we come back, we'll jump on those Es. But I only have a couple of them, so stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break. And our first E goes to EFF. So in technology, this stands for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Back in 1990, a trio of guys decided to form a nonprofit organization dedicated to defending civil liberties in the digital world. And these founders included a programmer who was perhaps best known for his role in developing the spreadsheet software Lotus123. Uh, that was Mitch Kapoor. Then there's an activist and developer named John Gilmore who worked on many different types of software, including tons of software under the GNU license. So more about GNU in the future. And then there was John Perry Barlow, who was among many, many other things, a lyricist for the band The Grateful Dead. Now, those three men shared a common passion for the defense of civil liberties, and they saw technology as being both a great enabler of liberty, as well as a potential threat to it, depending on how it's used. The inciting incident that led to the formation of the EFF revolved around a games publisher called Steve Jackson Games. And when I say games publisher, I mean hard copy stuff like board games and role-playing games and card games, not video games or computer games. So some famous ones include Shay Geek, which is sort of a comedy card game, or Munchkin, another comedy card game, this one fantasy-oriented. Uh, there's Illuminati, which is a game of uh, various conspiracies competing against each other in a way. And then there's GURPS, uh, the generic universal role-playing system, and there are tons of other ones. So what does a company that makes board games and RPGs and card games have to do with the EFF. Well, back in 1990, Steve Jackson had his company headquarters in Austin, Texas, and they were raided by the Secret Service. W what? All right, now stay with me. So in the late 80s, someone got hold of a proprietary document that belonged to Bell South. They were able to get hold of this and then they shared it. That document pertained to the 911 emergency system. And the fear was that if hackers were able to exploit that system, they might gum up the works and thus people who actually had to report emergencies would have no way of doing it. So it represented sort of a, a major threat. The Secret Service got involved to find out who was at, at you know fault, who, had, who was responsible and to, to go after them. And they found that the document had been posted on a bulletin board system, or BBS. Now, I guess I could have included BBS in our tech glossary, but BBS is a pretty outdated term these days. Uh, it's essentially a, a predecessor to the kind of stuff you would see with the internet, where someone would have special software that would allow other people to dial into their computer, so their computer could host all sorts of stuff, like message boards and games and files and that kind of thing, people could dial into that computer or BBS and access those things. Anyway, 
the guy who ran this particular BBS, but again, not necessarily the actual person responsible for posting the file there, was an employee of Steve Jackson Games. So the Secret Service decided they would seize all of this guy's computers, but they would also seize all of the computers of his employer to make certain that this proprietary document wasn't getting spread around. This was a crushing blow to Steve Jackson Games and Steve Jackson himself. His company just couldn't conduct business while the computers were in Secret Service custody. And eventually, Steve Jackson Games got their computers back. But it was clear that the Secret Service had really combed through the internal emails inside the company, and Steve Jackson wanted to pursue civil action against the Secret Service for damages, and wanted to lean on a civil rights organization to help with that lawsuit. But there really wasn't such any organization in existence that would really fit the bill. That's what precipitated the formation of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Today, the EFF helps in similar legal cases that revolve around civil liberties and technology. The EFF sometimes helps fund lawsuits or supplies expertise in technical and digital matters, and the organization isn't without critics. Uh, there's some people who argue that the EFF has really helped tech companies kind of entrench themselves and protect themselves against regulation and other matters that... Uh, maybe didn't lead to the right outcome, but, you know, it's it's kind of like anything with humans. There's stuff that is good and stuff that's not so good. Next, we have EOL. So in the movie Tron, EOL was the master control program's way of ending a line of communication. I mean, it literally meant end of line. There's the end of line club in the Tron Legacy film. But in this case, I actually mean EOL as end of life meaning the stage of a product's life cycle in which it's just going to get worse from here on out. So for example, let's take Windows XP, which is a very, or was a very popular operating system. There are still people out there who are using it today, despite the fact that it's sadly outdated. Microsoft released Windows XP way back in 2001, and that system dominated the market share for operating systems on personal computers at the time. And while Microsoft would release the successor to Windows XP in 2007, it actually continued to release service packs for Windows XP up through 2008 and even provided extended support until 2014. But by then, Microsoft was really pushing people to please, for the love of technology, update to a more recent operating system. Companies can't continue to support old software indefinitely and still dedicate resources to making new stuff. Plus, fewer pieces of current software were actually compatible with this older Windows operating system. And so, really by 2008, Windows XP was entering its EOL phase. Microsoft would stop updating it, and the product would grow increasingly obsolete over time. Another example of EOL is easy to see with smartphones. Smartphones depend upon the interaction of hardware, that being the actual smartphone mobile device, and software that being the operating system for that device, on top of which all the apps live. So with Apple, we are now on iOS 14, and the oldest iPhone capable of running that version of iOS is the iPhone 6S. That one is the one that originally launched in 2015. Older iPhones before the 6S, even if they are still operational, are firmly in the EOL phase because they can no longer keep pace with the latest operating systems 
which means fewer apps are going to run on them and they will become increasingly useless as time goes on. For companies, EOL might arrive much earlier than for customers. So a company will end sales and marketing efforts around a product that it designates as being an EOL. Essentially, the company says, we're no longer going to sell this stuff. We're going to sell the next version of this or you know, some improved version of this. And they focus on that instead. So they say, we're done dedicating resources to supporting this so that we can sell more stuff, more new stuff. So a company could actually start, stop selling a product uh, but continue supporting it for a while longer. In the case of Microsoft, for example, they stopped selling XP long before they stopped actually providing support for it. Next is FAQ, F-A-Q. I included this one even though I think probably everyone listening to this already knows it. It, of course, stands for Frequently Asked Questions. Anyone who has ever served as a point of contact for any organization knows that 99% of the time, you're answering the same basic questions repeatedly throughout the day. So one way to address that is to create a FAQ, and that has those basic answers already in there, so people can see them right off the bat. So when people use the FAQ, it frees up the time of the person who otherwise would have to respond and, you know, it just makes it easier to find answers in general. The term FAC actually predates the web, possibly emerging from the electronic mailing lists and Usenet groups in the 1980s. Next, we have FCC. This stands for the Federal Communications Commission, part of the United States government. It's easiest for me to just quote the FCC's website to describe what it does. So here it is, quote, the Federal Communications Commission regulates interstate and international communications by radio, television, wire, satellite, and cable in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and U.S. territories. An independent U.S. government agency overseen by Congress, the Commission is the federal agency responsible for implementing and enforcing America's communications laws and regulations. So, that organization formed after the passing of the Communications Act of 1934, and it has helped shape the landscape of technology quite a bit in the United States, sometimes for the better and sometimes not. The FCC is supposed to promote competition between various communications companies while also encouraging innovation and investment in services so that people get access to stuff like broadband connectivity. But a quick look at the telecommunications landscape in America tells you that for a lot of folks, the whole competition thing really isn't a, a thing. It's not that prominent. I mean, over the years, through various mergers and acquisitions, we've seen many regions get carved out by one or maybe two telecommunications companies. And I don't know what it's like where you live. However, at my home, because I checked it this morning just to make sure, we only have one telecommunications provider that offers connectivity at high speeds at my place. And even that isn't fiber. I don't get fiber connectivity where I live. And I live in the city of Atlanta, y'all. I mean, I'm, I'm not in like the sticks or something. I'm in the city limits. But enough about me griping about my personal lack of connectivity. The FCC has also played an inconsistent role in terms of ensuring net neutrality in the United States. The concept of net neutrality includes a lot of stuff, but one of the big ones is all content should be treated equally across all service providers. So in other words, if there's a company that is both an ISP and a content company, 
that ISP should not prioritize its own traffic over that from other content providers. There's a lot more to it than that. Net neutrality is a very big topic. And during certain political administrations, the FCC has pushed to create rules and policies that strengthen net neutrality, such as under the Obama administration, while in others, the FCC has largely dismantled those same systems, such as during Trump's presidency. Fun times. And the reason for that change, by the way, is that the leadership of the FCC comes by appointment by whomever is president at that time. And so as presidential administrations change, so too does the FCC. Anyway, you'll hear a lot about the FCC being involved in various tech-related issues here in the United States. Next up, flops. Now, this doesn't just describe that one stage play I was in back in 2002. Now, this is an acronym that stands for Floating Point Operations Per Second. So if you remember when I talked about CPUs in the previous episode, I mentioned that we measure their performance in part by clock cycles, which is kind of like how many instructions the CPU can execute per second. But there's another way to measure computer performance, and that's in how many floating point operations it can handle per second. So what is a floating point? Well, you can think of it as being similar to scientific not notation. So, you know, really big or really small numbers are difficult to handle, even for computers, especially computers that have to handle both at the same time. A computer has a limit to how many digits it can hold at any given moment. So floating points are a way to indicate very large or very small numbers and makes them much easier to handle and process. When we talk about supercomputers, we typically refer to the number of flops those computers can handle. The fastest supercomputer by this metric today is the Fugaku, which is incredible. It set an insane record of 442 petaflops using the HPL computer benchmark. It's a way of testing how many floating operations or floating point operations, I should say, a computer can complete in a second. So in the tech world, uh, what does petaflop mean? Well, we use the word kilo or the prefix kilo for thousand. We use mega for million, giga for billion, tera for trillion, and peta is for quadrillion, which means the Fugaku supercomputer reached 442 quadrillion floating point operations per second against this particular benchmark, which is pretty astounding, right? But according to Tech Republic, Fugaku was also able to achieve 2.0 exaflops against the benchmark of High Performance Computing Artificial Intelligence Workload, or HPC AI, another benchmark test. So an exaflop is one quintillion flops. It's even more like it's just the sucker is fast is what I'm saying. But typically when we're talking about flops, we're talking about high performance compute. We're not talking about, you know, your standard laptop. Next is FPS. This one's actually tricky because there are a few different FPS initialisms, and some of them can actually apply to the same stuff, but in different ways. So for example, in the world of video games, you can have FPS, meaning a first-person shooter, which is a type of game in which your perspective is from the first-person point of view, and you run around, you know, shooting stuff. But FPS can also stand for frames per second, as in the number of rendered frames presented to a viewer each second. 
And this version of FPS can apply to all sorts of games, including first-person shooter games. So you can talk about the FPS for an FPS, which is a lot of fun, right? Anyway, frames per second is important for creating a smooth video experience. So our vision tricks us. Uh, if we see a series of similar images and they're presented to us in quick succession, we experience this as if we're watching something that's actually in motion, that the image itself is moving. That's the whole basic foundation for film and for animation. So with a classic film, like something that's actually on film itself, we watch the playback of images at a rate of 24 frames per second. That's fast enough to make it seem as though we're watching moving images. But in fact, if you just stop the projector, you would see you're just looking at a series of photographs. Well, in the digital world, FPS is important too. And a higher FPS typically means a better experience for the viewer, particularly with video games. Higher FPS can help a gamer make better choices while playing and time things out just right, picking up on details that they might miss if they had a lower FPS. But just as we saw with resolution, there's a law of diminishing returns at play here. So once you get over a certain FPS, which varies from person to person, the benefits become less obvious as they crank up. There are other FPSs within the tech world too, like fast packet switching. That refers to how certain systems handle data transmissions across the system, but there's no need to jump into all that here. All right, I got a couple more Fs to get through after this break. So stick around for Fs sake. Next up, we got the FTC, and we're back to another U.S. government agency, similar to what we talked about with FCC. But the FTC stands for the Federal Trade Commission. So while the FCC specifically focuses on laws and regulations that relate to communications, which includes telecommunications and the internet and radio and etc., the FTC is primarily focused on enforcing antitrust laws and protecting consumers in the United States. So in this case, the word trust refers to an entity or sometimes a small group of entities that dominates an industry and uses various means to maintain that dominance by keeping other companies from being able to compete. So that can include stuff like fixing prices to undercut smaller competitors. And these smaller competitors might not have the financial ability to survive and they're effectively starved out because a dominant company could sell stuff at a loss and just endure that loss while waiting for the other businesses to die. And at that point, the company can then drive prices way up because there's no competition for consumers to turn to. So the FTC gets involved in a lot of the tech world because we see some massive consolidations going on within the space, whether it's Facebook gobbling up another social platform or Amazon buying up another marketplace, either real world or online, or Google buying up pretty much everything in sight. The FTC plays a part in making certain that companies are playing by the rules. And like the FCC, this isn't always, you know, apparent. But then I guess it all depends on how you interpret what the rules actually are. On the consumer protection side, the FTC is also the agency uh, responsible for enforcing stuff like COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act that we recently talked about. Because COPPA mostly relates to how companies collect and use children's information by using the internet, you might 
be tempted to think that it's the FCC that would be in charge, but that's just not the case. So it can get a bit confusing when you're talking about the FCC versus the FTC, and I sometimes mix up the two myself. I've been guilty of it. The FTC, however, is also older than the FCC. It traces its history all the way back to 1914. Moving on, FTP. You down with FTP? Yeah, you know me. All right, I'm kind of dating myself here. I'm actually very curious if producer Tari even recognizes that reference. Okay, so FTP stands for File Transfer Protocol, and a protocol is just a set of rules or instructions. So from a high level, this is the set of rules that that guide how you transfer files across networks. And when I say you, I really mean how systems transfer files from one machine to another across a network. It's uh, one of the underlying technologies for the internet, with others being things like email and the World Wide Web and stuff like that. FTP is also one of the older protocols with regard to the internet. It was first outlined back in 1971. And that's it for the F. All right, let's move on to G. And first up, we've got GDPR. And we start off with a biggie. This stands for General Data Protection Regulation, and it refers to a regulation in, uh, in law uh, in the European Union, and it concerns itself with the privacy and data protection of EU citizens. So in the EU, member countries drafted out rules to protect privacy and personal information and gave EU citizens more of a say in how their data could be collected and used. GDPR puts the onus on companies to follow these rules or potentially face huge fines. Over in the United States, the explosive growth of the internet far outpaced privacy laws, which in the U.S. have been fairly loosey-goosey. Like, there's only a few privacy laws or, like, outright privacy laws in the United States. So, as a result... Uh, these companies that were web-based had established some pretty aggressive strategies when it comes to collecting, using, and sharing personal information. In fact, there's an entire industry based around establishing huge databases of personal info and then charging other companies to access those databases. Our information, our personal info, is the currency of much of modern technology. And while the member states of the EU wanted to create rules to restrict how companies could do this with EU citizens. So they wouldn't be given free reign to collect and exploit data. They would actually need to follow specific rules, which includes alerting users to any points of data collection, as well as to declare how and why that data will be used. The restrictions meant that companies had to change how they handled information, and that in itself became a kind of micro-industry. You had a lot of consultants that worked with tech companies to make certain that their policies and processes were compliant with GDPR, because otherwise, things could get super expensive really fast. They also tend to involve some pretty negative press if a company is found to have violated GDPR. It's not a good look. The passing of GDPR effectively sent shockwaves through the tech industry, which at that point really wasn't used to governments getting that proactive in the protection of citizen data. And GDPR has gone on to inspire some places, like the state of California, to draft privacy acts that essentially use GDPR as the basis for that law. There are some exemptions to GDPR, though. 
For example, law enforcement is not required to abide by GDPR, and in matters of national security, GDPR does not apply. GDPR has also changed a bit since passing. Originally, there was this concept called the right to be forgotten, which generally meant that an EU citizen would have the right to request that their personal information be deleted from any online sources, including stuff like online search engines. But critics pointed out that this policy was flawed. So let's say that we've got a case where a public figure does something truly terrible, newsworthy and terrible, Uh, like they've committed a crime of some sort. Uh, If that person were to then follow this, this process, they might be able to demand that all mention of that crime get erased from the internet, which you could argue is against the public good. So these days, the right to be forgotten is now known as the right of erasure. And uh, it's not the band erasure. I tried to discover a little something to make me sweeter. No, it's a... uh, it's it's a process that's a little more limited. It, it cannot go nearly as far as the right to be forgotten. And uh, it includes stuff like you have to put in the request of erasure within a certain amount of time from publication or else you miss the boat. Uh, also, there's the consideration about whether or not removing the information would represent a public harm or if it would be more harmful to the individual if that information were to remain up. There are a lot of different parts to it, in other words. Next up is GIF, and this is one of our more contentious entries on this list. So obviously, I still pronounce G-I-F as GIF. I do not pronounce it as GIF. The initialism stands for Graphics Interchange Format, and it's a subtype of bitmap image formats. The online service provider CompuServe developed the GIF file format in the 1980s, led by developer Steve Wilhite. Now, Steve Wilhite pronounces it GIF, and that therefore he's wrong. Which I, I'm joking. I'm not. He's not really wrong. In fact, various dictionaries say that both pronunciations are acceptable. But I mean, come on. The G stands for graphic, not giraffic. Anyway. Will Height's team was looking for a way to create image files that didn't take up an enormous amount of file space. So this was before the World Wide Web, but people were using online service providers and bulletin boards, and they wanted a way of being able to share images or to download images. And the GIF team created a format that limited color selection to 256 colors, which helped keep file sizes down, and they used a compression algorithm to kind of squish these file sizes down, and the GIF was born. The compression algorithm identifies repeating patterns within an image, and then takes those patterns and simplifies them for the purposes of expressing them within the file. So this means that, let's say you've got an image that has a lot of, you know, a particular shade of blue in one section. The file can essentially say, hey, over here in this part, defined by these parameters, all of that is just blue, rather than laying out that each blue pixel is individually in each position. Now, I am oversimplifying here, but that, from a high level, is kind of what was going on. By stringing together a sequence of GIFs, it's possible to have them play in a loop, and thus we get the animated GIF. Though many of the animated GIFs we see today are actually small video files that just kind of, you know, they use code to make them behave in a way that we think of as animated GIFs. Uh, But it turns out that 
the video coding technology has actually outpaced GIF code. So we tend to see small video files rather than actual GIFs. However, the GIF name has stuck around, even though it's not necessarily a GIF file extension. Next up is GPS. This stands for Global Positioning System. Often we refer to a device like, you know, something that we use in a car as a GPS, by which we mean a navigational device that relies upon this global positioning system to calculate that device's position relative to the surface of the Earth. That's a wordy way of saying the the device is using information from satellites to figure out where the heck it is. Back in the 1970s, the Department of Defense in the United States began working on what would become the GPS, and it would take a couple of decades to complete it. But by the early 1990s, the full complement of 24 satellites that were part of this original plan were up in orbit, and they were needed so that you could get global coverage for GPS. Otherwise, before that, you know, coverage was sporadic based upon whether or not you had the appropriate number of satellites uh, within range of you in orbit. Now, these satellites are not in geosynchronous orbit with the Earth. So in other words, they're not remaining in a fixed position relative to a point on the Earth's surface. So they are in an orbit that's at a different rate than the Earth's rotation, also a different uh, trajectory than Earth's rotation. And that's why you need to have multiple satellites, like 24 of them, to maintain constant coverage because satellites pass out of range at certain points and other satellites will come into range. Uh, That's why you need that many up there. These satellites send out signals that receivers on Earth, like the one in your car, can pick up, or the one in your phone for that matter. And each signal sent by a satellite contains some information that it's really important. One of those pieces of information is a a precise timestamp that says exactly when the satellite broadcasts that that signal. And also there's some data that indicates that particular satellite's orbital location. So the receiver has to pick up signals from at least three satellites to get a physical location. Uh, Because of the timestamp, the receiver, quote-unquote, knows how long that signal had traveled from the satellite to the receiver. The receiver has to compare this against its own time reading, typically from an atomic clock, but more on that in a second. Now, this means that the receiver knows how far away it is from the satellite, because the satellite communication travels at the speed of light. So, You just take the amount of time it took for the signal to go from when it was broadcast to when it was picked up by the receiver, and you use that to figure out how many miles it traveled in that span of time, because it was traveling at the speed of light. So then you could draw a sphere around the satellite, like a virtual sphere, that represents all the points that are that distance away from the satellite in every single direction. Now, granted, you're only interested in the points that make an intersection with the Earth, but there will be a lot of those. So then you want to compare that with other satellites. You need at least three. And then you're looking at the intersection of where these different spheres meet. And with three satellites, you get two points where the spheres will all intersect. One of those two points will definitely be on the surface of Earth. The other one may or may not be. So then by looking at the point that's actually on the surface of the Earth, the receiver says, okay, now I know where I am because I'm able to tell by the distance I am from these three different satellites. It's really, really neat. Um, it's it's kind of similar to um, 
triangulation, but not exactly the same. Anyway, uh, with four satellites, you can actually eliminate the need for the receiver to have access to its own atomic clock to make certain to correct for errors. And there's a lot more to it than that. For example, until the 1990s uh, within the U.S., civilian use of GPS was really limited because GPS was meant for military use. So civilian receivers, they existed, but they also purposefully introduced errors into the display. So you could not use a GPS to get a specific reading of your location. You could get kind of a general reading. So you wouldn't be able to use it to do stuff like make turn-by-turn directions in real time because your receiver's location readout could be off by several hundred feet. So it could be like, turn left. Uh, You're going to turn left either in 100 feet or it might be 300 feet behind you. So (laughs) not very useful. But then later on, President Clinton lifted that restriction. And since then, we've been able to use GPS receivers to help us get to where we're going. Or, you know, if you're using Apple Maps, you can use it to drive into a river. I'm kidding. I'm just using a very outdated joke about the reliability of Apple Maps, which obviously has improved significantly (laughs) since it first launched. So it's an unfair joke for me to make. These days, there are more than 35 GPS satellites out in orbit, and the technology also is a great way to explore the concepts of general and special relativity, because you have to have an understanding of both of those things in order to correct for the issues of time dilation. But that's a complicated subject for another time. In fact, I have covered that in past episodes. So check that out if you want to learn how it is that GPS proves that Einstein was right. It's pretty fascinating stuff. All right, and that's it for this episode. We're going to leave off here. We're going to pick back up in our next one to continue our glossary. That'll be next week, starting on Monday. And we'll continue to work our way through these various acronyms and initialisms to kind of demystify the world of tech, which gets very reliant on jargon and acronyms and stuff to the point where it can feel kind of like it's excluding others on purpose. And I don't dig that. I like to be inclusive. So we're going to keep on going. In the meantime, if you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle we use is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 